0: Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Hello, everybody. Let's do a little bit better than that. What's up, everybody? There we go. That's a lot better. That's a lot better. It, it is Christmas time. We could be a little bit more festive than that. I want to thank uh, Brother AJ for coming up and speaking uh, and reading our scripture in Germany. For the last few weeks during our Advent series, throughout the year, we like to take a moment to pause and really celebrate the diversity of our community and the particular ways in which God has blessed his people and blessed his church with diversity in culture, languages, and we wanna celebrate that, right? That, that is a good thing that we, would, that, that we would like to celebrate here. And we are a multi ethnic community, and we like to celebrate that uh, from time to time through the reading of scripture in different languages and, and all the time through the, the singing of songs and worship. So, yeah, so thank you, Brother AJ, for, for reading that in German for us. Before we dive into our scripture this morning, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. For all that you are to us. God, we need you. And Holy Spirit, we welcome you into this place this morning. Spirit, I pray that you visit us, continue to visit us as we dive into your word this morning, as we learn more about you, Lord. And God, as we attempt, as we continue to diligently seek you, I pray that you can reveal your word to us, reveal your truth to us, so that we can truly know what it means to be a follower of yours and to be and to be a dedicated child of yours, a child of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen, amen, amen. We are in, I think this is part three of our Advent series. Advent, for those of you who may not know, is arrival. It means arrival. I believe it, that, is a Latin, that is a Latin phrase, and the English rendering of, that, rendering of that is arrival. And we celebrate the arrival of our Savior. This morning, we come to John 1, 14 through 18. And church, it's exciting because we've come to the climax of this opening prologue. The Word became flesh. This is it, right? This is the monumental moment in all of human history. The eternal God, the omnipresent God, the omnipotent God, decided to take up residence in human flesh and dwell among us. The Word became flesh, that Word being God. And as Scott explained to us a couple of weeks ago, when we think about that phrase, the Word, particularly in in the context of when this is written, what that refers to is the particular way in which the universe is structured. It is the reason behind the reason of why we all exist, right? And John says emphatically that the word, the reason why we exist, the word, the, 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 the reason why the, why the universe is structured the way it is, the word is not some philosophy. It's not some dogma right? It's not some reasoning or logic according to human understanding. The Word is actually a person. The Word is God. And what John tells us in 14 is that this Word, this God, decided to take up residence, to become flesh, to become become human, to ultimately execute the redemption plan of our Father in heaven. He says the word becomes flesh and decided to dwell among us. I love this phrase because dwell among us, fully translated in the Greek, know what it means? It means pitched his tent, right? It says that Jesus decided to pitch his tent on earth. The word became flesh. And and, and he said that I'm going to pitch my tent. I'm going to experience everything that is about the human experience. So, yes, Jesus is thus the God man, right? He's not half man and half God. No. He's fully God and he's fully human, and he's fully human, right? He's fully divine. And also fully human. So, so, so he, he's fully human in that he cries as a baby. Just like all those well kids that we see, that was Jesus as well. He cried as a baby. But he's also fully God. Which meant that one day he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. He's going to inaugurate a new world order in eternity where there will be no more hardship, where there will be no more pain, where there will be no more tragedy. He's going to do this because he's God. The word became flesh. Right? The most amazing and monumental event in all of human history. There is no category of the human experience that Jesus himself did not face. Rejection. Hunger. Pain. Loss. He faced it all. And this is why the author of Hebrews says that we can go boldly before the throne of grace because we can go to our Savior and our Savior can say, I know. I know what you're experiencing. I know what you're going through. You know why? Because I went through it too. I faced something similar too. And because I know I am uniquely qualified as your God and Savior to guide you, to lead you, to counsel you through what you're going through. The Word became flesh. God becomes human. What a thing. What a moment. As I was studying and meditating this week, I was so struck by this. I raise the question to myself, what's at stake here? Why does this matter? Right? Why is this such an important thing in all of human history? I was at Starbucks on Thursday doing some procrastination, summer prep. <laughs> Starbucks. And this elder, this elder lady walks by me. She says, hey, young man, you might if I sit with you, while, you uh, while, I, while I wait for my drink? I said, absolutely, of course. You can, you, you're, more, you're more than welcome to. She sees me studying. She said, you got a lot of books here. What are you, what are you, what are you, what are you working on? I said, well, they told me I got to preach on Sunday, so I figured I might as well prepare. You know what I'm saying? So, so I was like, you know, that's, 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 that's what I'm doing. And she was like, wow, how old are you? I was like, oh, I'm 28. Wow, you a young pastor. I said, oh, you know, I'm just out here, man. I'm just trying to figure it all out like everybody else. But she, was, she, and she went on to ask me, what are you preaching about? That, and I was like, we're, we're in the Advent series we're talking about Jesus, all that kind of stuff. Then I was asking her, so so what do you do? Like, what's your story, all that kind of stuff? And she said, she went on to tell me about her life's work, which is that she works with formerly incarcerated girls, young girls who were formerly incarcerated. And she went on to say that she's been doing this for about 20, 25 years. And her work is to give them life skills on how to sort of enter into society to pursue their hopes and dreams. But she also said that most of the time with these girls, What leads them to jail is a trauma response. They usually have gone through something so traumatic that it leads them to just make these rash choices and decisions. And a part of her work is to teach them how to respond differently to their trauma, right? And I was just, I was was like, this is a beautiful work. Praise God that you're doing this work. And she just said, thank you. And as I was thinking about the work that she was doing with these girls. I was reminded of this picture that Pastor Scott showed us last week. Can we put that picture up real quick? This picture here. Right? This is a contemporary rendering of what Mary and Joseph would look like in our context and in these modern times. I was reminded of this picture because If Jesus was alive, well, and here today, my belief is that on his way to the church, he would stop by the Lynchburg house where where, where she does this work with these formerly incarcerated girls. He would stop by this house and visit with these girls. Because these girls who come from low socioeconomic uh, 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 circumstances, these girls who are born into toxic environments, they share the common experience of being born into a similar environment that our Savior was born into, right? When you look at these people here, I would imagine that those girls would look at those people and say, those are my people. I've seen these people before. I've seen them on the corner. I've seen them struggling. I've seen them trying to figure it out like I've been trying to figure it out, right? Jesus would be among these people. And he would would stop in that house. He would serve these girls. He 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 would affirm these girls. And these girls would come to a point to be like, you know, who are you? Why are you doing this? And that's when our Savior would say, you know, I have been sent by my Father to redeem and save humanity. The work you're doing here is good work, but it's not the ultimate way. The work you're doing here is fine work. I encourage you to continue to do this work. But if you want to know the actual way, if you want to know the fundamental hope of your life, there's only one way to get it, and that is through me my salvation, my redemption, my forgiveness, and my way of life, my way of living, and my way of existence. And that fundamental truth applies to all of humanity. And it, pl- it applies especially to us as Christians, as, as, as those who, who claim to know Jesus, those who as those who say, I believe in Jesus. It applies to us too because, All of us go through our lives trying to navigate it in a way that we think is best. And that fundamental truth that Jesus would tell these girls and that he tells us every single day, there is another way. There is another way. It's my way. And I need you to give me control. I need you to let go of the hardest thing that any of us could ever do. Let go and let me take control over your life. This prologue that we've been reading the last few weeks in John, fundamentally, see, it's not about a message of hope, but it's about the message that is the only hope. Right. It's not just a simple message about this is how you have hope. No, no, no. It's about the word, the message, the person that is the only hope in our lives. Word made flesh. it, it, It means that God makes himself accessible to all. And his revelation is not hidden for mystics and scholars and pastors. No, he says that I am available to all in such a way that I can be touched. My glory can be accessed in such a way that when I die in a sin, that the glory that I had on earth can now be accessed by the power of my spirit that can indwell in you. That is the hope. The only hope. And see, here's the thing. The world would have us believe that we can attain hope and transformation through our own endeavors. What a delusion, right? The world would have us believe that by the power of our achievement, by the power of our human will, by the power of us working harder and harder and harder, that we can have all the things that will make us fundamentally happy, fulfilled, and joyful. No. God says no. The only way hope and transformation happens is this: it it, it has to be God-initiated. God initiates it. And when God initiates it, when God steps into our broken world, our broken situations, our broken lives, new life manifests by the power of His Spirit. The Word made flesh, God entering into our world, God pitching His tent where we are, taking up residence in our lives, right? And it's interesting because we genuinely believe that we know what's best. Because here's the thing, the gospel and and, and this act by Christ, what it truly signifies to us is this. This This is part of the scandal of the gospel, is that we are not enough. You are not enough. You cannot do it on your own. You need help, right? And see, I love this because God will say to us right here, you ain't it, fam. It ain't you. It's got to be me. It's got to be me. I have to be savior. I have to be counselor. I have to be the guider. I have to be everything. And since you cannot do it on your own, you have to let me be your everything, right? Right? You have to let me be your everything. Because, see, we exist at times, right, unintentionally on a both-and paradigm. I need Jesus. Here we go. Having things alongside Christ—what you want me to do? Get your pack. All right. Here we go. We going. All right. Having things alongside Christ, right? It's not a bad thing. But having things try to try to take the place of Christ. It's what we're we're not trying to do. Here's the thing, right? We all can say, I love Jesus. I need Jesus. I trust Jesus. But functionally, functionally, we're living in such a way that says, well, it would also be cool if I had X, Y, Z. It would really be cool if I had this in addition to Christ. And God's like, nah, I fail. I need God, period. That's it. End of the sentence. I need Christ, and that's it. Right? We have to allow Jesus to be the chief end of our desires, right? And when we allow Christ to be the chief end of our desires, he will then give us the desires that he wants for us. Don't miss that. You hear what I said the last part? He will give us the desires that he wants for us, right? That's the key there. And see, ultimately, this falls down, this boils down to trust. Do I trust that God knows what's best for me? Lord have mercy. Do I trust that God has my best interest at heart? Because if I trust that, if I believe in that, then I can say boldly that I just need you, Lord. And the outflow of my faith in you will give me everything that I need in my life. That's it. I need God. And we cannot live in this both and paradigm. We have to allow our ultimate hope to be in Christ. And see, here's the thing. Right. This can be difficult because I think a hidden part of our faith in Jesus is that, especially in this country. I just go and say, even as evangelicals, we can tend to believe that if I pray every day, if I read my Bible, if I'm this so-called good Christian, nothing bad should ever happen to me. If I'm living my life in the right way, my life should be peachy. It should be great, right? We believe this. There's a part of us that believe this. So when trouble comes our way, we're shocked. Like, God, how dare you? I've given you my life. I go to church every Sunday, right? I pray, I read my Bible, I'm doing the work. So why am I going through what I'm going through? And the truth is, church, Scott alluded to this a little bit last week, God does not promise us, even to the most so-called devoted Christians, there isn't this promise in the Bible that you will live a suffering-free life. That promise just does not exist, right? And I don't say that to make us despair, I don't say that to make us sad. I say that so that we can have a holistic and truthful view of the way life is. Right? Because God does not exist or he does not run based on your expectations of who he should be. Right? That's not how God works. God works in a way that says, I am the creator. I'm the sustainer, so therefore, I'm going to run this universe, I'm going to run your life the way I deem to be fit. And it it, it it always brings us to this fundamental question, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? I'm going to put good people in quotes. <laughs> Why do bad things happen to good people? And, and the reason I put it in quotes is because the scandal of the gospel is that no one is good. The scandal of the gospel is that none of us are enough. The scandal of the gospel is that we all need a savior. So there's no, there really isn't a good person. But I think the reason that question resonates with us, why do bad things happen to good people, is because we all experience this feeling of, if I'm not causing anyone harm, if they're not causing anyone harm, why are they suffering, right? Why is it happening to them, Lord? It doesn't seem fair. And in these moments of extreme doubt, we can tend to believe that God has forgotten us, that God has forsaken us because suffering is happening. And it's it's an important reminder, as Pastor Scott said last week, that the promise that we have to learn to cling to as Christians is that God will never leave us. God will never forsake us.. My, <laughs> right, yeah. here we go. When we look back over our lives, we remember how faithful God has been how good God has been, and what has to be included in that is that God has never left me. God has never forsaken me. God has been here beside me the entire time, right? And see, church, word may flesh. When Jesus, when God decided to pitch his tent on earth, that was his ultimate demonstration of him never leaving us. That was his ultimate demonstration of him not forsaking us. Because here's the thing God could have just left us out to dry. He could have just said, I'm going to just, I'm, I'm going to expect them to overcome their sin on their own. I'm going to expect them to just follow my law, even though I know they can't really do it that well. I'm just going to leave them hanging. I gave them the law. That's it. But see, God in his love, God in his grace said, no, they need help. No, they belong to me. And as long as they belong to me, I will not abandon them. I'm not going to abandon my creation. I'm not going to abandon my children. So I'm going to go to earth take up residence right where they are, and show them how to live. And not only am I going to show them how to live, I'm going to die for their sins. I'm going to sacrifice myself for them so that they can be empowered by my spirit to live as I've lived. I will not abandon them. So we have to remember that in the midst of it all, God's nature is to not forsake, And it's to not leave us hanging. Leave us out. Leaving us out to dry. You know, I think about our Savior Jesus. Because if anybody had a gripe with God, deserved to have a gripe with God, I should say, it would be Jesus. Jesus lives this sinless life, yet, he's born as a poor Jew from Nazareth. He's born into these terrible, social circumstances he's abandoned he's forgotten by his hometown right and ultimately he has to die yet in the midst of the life of jesus he lives in such a way that we are reminded of two realities reality number one reality number one is that we live in a broken and fallen world, which means that broken and fallen things will happen to us in such a way that brokenness, it didn't even skip Jesus, y'all. Jesus experienced it, right? So if our God can come into this world and brokenness didn't skip him, it ain't gonna skip us either. But here's the thing. The brokenness that Jesus faced did not define him, though, right? It it, it did not dictate his belief and his trust in his father. Because Jesus would tell you with a straight face, birds have nests, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I ain't got nowhere to sleep. He said that with a straight face. And the reason he said that with a straight face is because he had full belief that his father would provide for him and that the nearness and the presence of his father would give him the joy, the peace, and the power to endure as he's on his way to an eternity of no pain and no suffering, right? Right? Jesus teaches us that if we can cling to the presence of God in the midst of suffering, new life awaits us in eternity. And we cling to that. He teaches us that. The word became flesh to teach us how to live. And the important thing here is, if we want to navigate this life according to the standards and principles of our Father, we have to let God be our everything. We gotta let, we, we, we have to take on this posture of, Lord, order my steps, order my thoughts, order my habits, so that my faith is fully in you and not anything else. My faith is not in my family. My faith is not in my job. My faith is not in anything that's temporal, that is of this world. My faith is in something that is unconditional, that, that, that is eternal, right? Because our allegiance should only be to the thing that's unchanging, that's everlasting, that's unrelenting, unending. And there's only one person that meets that criteria, church. That's God. So we have to allow God to be our everything. Allow him to structure the priorities, the habits of our life. And in doing this, it allows us to navigate the circumstances of our lives the way Jesus navigated his. And that is by clinging to the presence of his father. That is by clinging to the nearness of his father as he went through, as he endured, as he navigated he was able to still have joy, to still have peace, to still be content because he was relying on something that was outside of himself. He was relying on a source that was not of this world. And we have to ask ourselves the question, as we go through what we go through, what are we relying on? Are we relying on our own strength, on our own power, on our own persistence, on our grit, right? Are we lying on that? And these things aren't bad things, but these things can fail us. I should say these things will fail us. But when we rely on God, when we rely on the presence and power of God, that will not fail us. It doesn't mean that life is going to be peachy. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. But it does guarantee us that if we endure, there is hope. There is transformation. About eight months ago, I was talking to my granny, and uh, she, unfortunately, this is a little deep, she unfortunately got diagnosed with cancer. It's called myeloma, and it crippled her. And Six months, she was just not the same person, right? She couldn't, she she wasn't able to cook for her family, she wasn't able to do anything. Quite honestly, I would call, I would pray with her, and she was just sad, deeply sad, which is which is to be expected. But about a, two months ago, my granny called me, and there was a little pep in her voice, and I thought it was she she had been healed. I thought everything had got gone, gone, everything had gone away. Say, hey, Jalen, this is Granny. I know I've been sad for the last few months, but I just want to reassure you that I'm okay. I said, Granny, is, is the treatment working? She said, no, nah, I'm still sick, but I'm okay. And I said, Granny, can I ask you, why can you say you're okay? And she said, you know, Jalen, it's been rough, but what I can say is God is good. And I'm like, Granny, <laughs> why? This, is, this, has been, this has been terrible. Why can you say God is good? Jalen, God is good because he ain't left me. He ain't left me this entire time. I've been able to access the joy of my father. I've been able to access the peace of my father in the midst of what I'm going through. And I said, i would be doggone, granny. Here it is, this 80-year-old woman with this with this cancer, right, not being healed yet, reassured that her God has not left her. That her God has not given up on her. That her God is with her in the midst of, in the midst of it all. And that is why this faith matters. That is why the Word made flesh matters. it is the ultimate demonstration that God is with us. That God did not abandon us. He came to earth. So that we can see him, so that we can touch him, so that we can watch him live, so that we can learn how to live. God has not left us. God has not left you. He's with you. And by the power of his spirit, there's life. There is tremendous life by the power of his spirit. Oh, man, I love my granny so much. It blessed me so much to see a person of faith go through yet still be resolved enough and had to really be brought back into the reality that my God is good even in the midst of the word became flesh. This is our hope. And and, and we're almost to the finish line here. This is our hope. And John goes on to say in verse 16 and 17 that this hope that we have is full of grace and truth. What does this mean? Well, verse 16 and 17. Can we, can we go to that real quick, Rachel? Can we go to verse 16 and 17? I want to read it real quick for the folks. There we are. It says that, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, what does this mean? So, for John, grace is closely linked with the generous work of God entering into the world to redeem a world that will ultimately be hostile toward him, Right? That's grace, entering into a world that he knew would not accept him, entering into a world, saving a world that would reject him fundamentally, yet still he does the work. That's grace. And I think when we think about grace and truth, right, looking to the cross as a symbol helps us understand what grace and truth means. So as we look to the cross, we've got this visual representation here. Grace as we look at that horizontal beam, right? It represents the outstretched hands of our Savior. And these outstretched hands represent the all embracing arms. Of our father in heaven it represents the all-merciful all-compassionate nature of our god the cross we see our savior with his outstretched hand saying come to me let me redeem you let me forgive you let me show you the way as i'm dying for you that's grace And then we have truth. Let's look to that vertical beam for the truth. When we think about truth, the truth, it goes down deep. It, it, It goes beyond the noise, right? It says that this is the real, straight, hard truth. And truth is not simply the opposite of falsehood. Truth is synonymous with God. Truth is synonymous with what it is to be divine. This is why Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, truth being God. And this is why He calls the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit of truth. So the only way that any of us can know the absolute truth about who we are, about who we belong to, is by the wise God that we serve. He brought grace. And truth manifested in the flesh. And I want to get to this, too. Let's go, let's, 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 go, let's go down to verse 17, please. It says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who was at the Father's side. He made him know. Before we get to the last part, let's go, to, let's, go to, let's, go to, let's go to the Moses part. I think at times there's a temptation to pit Moses and the law. Against Jesus and grace. This is this is temptation to pit the Old Testament against the New Testament. Huh. But that's not what John's doing here. John is, he brings up Moses and then he brings up Jesus because he recognizes that Moses and the giving of the law. Jesus manifesting in the flesh are two decisive moments in all of salvation history. Both of these moments matter because here here it is again. God sets Israel free from Egypt and says, Israel, there is a way for you to live as a liberated people. And see, I cannot just allow you to live any old kind of way because you are a free people. So, therefore, I have to teach you how to live free and not just be free. Right? So, therefore, and, 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 therefore, I gotta teach you here again. He's not leaving them hanging. He's not leaving them to their own desires. He's teaching them saying, Don't do this, because if you do this, it will lead you down the wrong path. And I don't want you to go down the wrong path. I'm not gonna leave you hanging. I'm not going to forsake you. So I'm going to. I'm doing this to save you. The law is a part of that. And then Jesus comes along, and Jesus now says, hey, I'm going to now empower you by the power of my spirit to actually do the law of my father. I'm going to give you grace upon grace. I'm going to forgive you so that you can continue to live up to the standards of the law as I'm doing. I'm going to teach you how to... We back, how to play the game, right? I'm gonna teach you how to do it. In order for you to play the game well, you need grace, you need grace, you need forgiveness, you need truth. And here I am with it two moments in all of history that matter equally, equally, right? It's not putting they're not being pitted against each other. In closing. This last line here is a great summation of what this prologue is trying to get us to say. It says that no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, being Jesus, has made him known. (laughs) When Jesus pitched his tent on earth, he represents God in a manner that no one has ever seen before. He, 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 he is making God known in this extraordinarily relatable way, right? He's saying that I'm going to become human just like you. I see you in everything you're going through. I see you. And because I see you, I'm going to become like you. What a God we serve, right? I'm going to become like you. I'm going to live like you. I'm going to thirst like you. I'm going to be hungry like you. I'm going to have to suffer like you. I'm going to have to endure like you. I'm going to have to be let down like you. I'm going to have to be rejected like you. I'm going to have to be. I'm going to have to be all these things just like you. And I want you to watch me. Watch me. Watch me close. See how I live, right? Watch me. And I want you to emulate me. Not by your own strength, but by the power of my spirit. See, I'm not just gonna leave you by yourself, right? I'm not just gonna leave you hanging and say, hey, go do what I'm doing. Nope, I got you. I'm right here with you. My spirit It's going to come right alongside you. It's going to indwell you so that you can be empowered to live like me. God does not leave us hanging. God never forsakes us. That's not what he does. And that is what we have to cling to. That is what we have to cling to with with every ounce of our being. In the midst of it all, God, I know you're here. And God, if you are here, I know that I can endure like your son did. I know that I can make it through like your son did. I know that if I endure like your son did, I'm going to be in eternity with you just like your son did. Jesus was a model. So let us follow. Let us make him our everything. Because he's the only thing that can give us the power to endure.